tonight, tonight, the, the, the lesson for tonight, the sermon for tonight, I was reading a few weeks ago in Mark chapter 3, and I was stunned again at people, at people. And what's, what always amazes me is we always think we're different than the people in Scripture, don't we? We always, at some level, even though we say we don't, we do. We think it would have been different if we were there. We wouldn't have responded like Peter, you know, to Jesus. We would have been able to walk on water with Jesus and never sink. And at some level, we look at those stories and we think, I'd have done it different. But as I was reading it, I was, I was looking at one kind of character in particular. And you guys know this phrase, haters gonna hate? You know what I'm talking about there? You know what a hater is? I mean, it's somebody who's always negative. No matter what, they're negative. And you may know people like that in your life. There are negative people. There the glass is always half empty no matter what is going on. And if they're talking, they're complaining. Do you know anybody like that in your life? You know people who are like that. The only conversation you can have with them is if if it's about a common enemy. And you can at least have that with them. I mean, it's people who that you can't please them no matter what is going on. They're the kind of people that... Kind of say, don't confuse me with the facts. My mind's made up. They're the kind of people that say, no matter what is happening, they know three or four ways to do it better. If you've got something going on in your life that's bad, they've got a worse story. They can one-up you. It's a one-down you. But they can one-up you on something down. It's, it's sad because they're, such, they're so wounded in life, it's as if nothing can ever go right for them. And nothing's ever gone right. And no matter what it is, they can't see the good in anything. Their life has been such toast that if yours is good, they want to burn it down. They just, they just are like that. Everything's wrong. Everything's negative. They can't see the good in anyone. Everything's like that. And then if something is happening good, they begrudge it in other people. You like that word, begrudge? You know, we don't use that enough. But uh, begrudge, you begrudge when other people get attention. They begrudge it when other people get recognition. I actually thought, you know, begrudge is a good word, but I'm not sure if we're really all that familiar with it. I was looking at I don't do this very often, but Webster says it's a resentful awareness of and is the desire for another's possessions or advantages. That is a good word. It's a good description. And they feel resentment towards someone over their possessions and advantages. You know, people like that. That no matter what is going on, they can't celebrate or be happy for someone else who's had some good fortune or something happen in their life. Usually what they'll say is something like, well, they didn't deserve it. And I'm not saying I deserve it, but I would deserve it more than them. They're the kind of people who would, who would go on and on and say, I've done more than them. I've, I've tried harder and worked harder. And look at that. They get all that. You may know people like that. It's people like people who everybody bugs them. It's just... Some people bug them a little less, and they they tolerate them a little more, but everybody bugs them. You may know people like that, people who are not happy unless they're actually griping. That makes them happy to gripe. They only have one look, and it's negative and sour and dour and down. Nothing will ever work, and if it does, it used to work better. Do you know people like this? If manna fell from heaven today, what would they say? Is it gluten-free? (laughs) they're joy suckers do you know anybody like that they suck the joy out of every situation they're grievance collectors and they've always got a reason to be angry or upset or negative or the why things could be better (laughs) they're downers they're the opposite of life of the party when they show up people just steal themselves against the onslaught because they know it's going to be negative 
And you hold on to your joy because you know they're going to try to take it. Jesus had his haters. You realize that, right? He had haters. Literal haters. They followed him around all the time. They followed him around and they criticized him. They followed him around and they watched and waited for him to make a mistake. They followed him around and, and they actually would send people to try to trip him up. That to, they would plan and, and, and plot and try to come up with questions that could try to trick him into saying something that would either get him on the, on the bad side of Rome or on the bad side of the people. But whatever they did, they, they followed him around. He had his haters. They judged his reactions and they judged his responses. And then they judged the people who responded to him. They saw the crowds. These haters, they saw the crowds, and they resented the crowds, and they begrudged the crowds. They saw the, the small crowds, and then the large crowds, and then the thousands. There were no megaphones. There were no sound systems. There were no meeting halls. It wasn't as if he had an open-air crusade. It's just that these people followed him, and there's times where they would follow him into wilderness places, and we know that at times they counted him, and at least when he fed the 4,000 and the 5,000, and then they said, and that was just the men. They didn't have that. His haters didn't have that happening. Basically, what they did is they sat back in their synagogues and places and waited for them to come to them, and they didn't come to them. But then when they were outside, they saw the crowds that would follow Jesus. They didn't like it because they saw the connection that he had with the crowds, and they saw the rapport that he had with the crowds, and they saw that the crowds looked at him and then looked at them. And they would look at him, and they would say things like, Wow, he teaches authority way different than them. And it just made those haters hate more. And they hated more, and they hated more. And they saw the miracles. They saw the miracles. If you can imagine the scene, they were always on the outside like this, watching. And they didn't celebrate the miracles. They disparaged the miracles. They didn't, they didn't celebrate when they saw lives changed and the lame walk and the... And the the dumb talk and the deaf hear. They didn't celebrate. Can you imagine those scenes? Can you imagine how it was when someone who had never spoke, spoke for the first time? What do you think words came out of their mouth? Thank you and gratitude and celebration and praise God. And then everybody around them would start praising God and their family would start praising God, but not them, not the haters. They wouldn't be praising God. And when, when Jesus would, would cast a demon out of somebody, what did they do? What did those people do? The demon-possessed the demon person who at one point was screaming and shrieking and throwing themselves on the ground, and now they're quiet and in their own mind and totally at peace. What did the haters do? The haters said, well, he can only do that because he does it with the power of the devil. I mean, really? You can't even celebrate? And what did they do when people were raised to life? Someone who was dead and now is alive. I mean, you remember, I know you remember these stories, but there's one where Jesus is walking along and there's a, there's a, there's a funeral for a boy, a young boy, a teenager maybe, and he heals him. He gets out of the coffin. Can you imagine the scene? And what are they saying? He touched a dead body. He's unclean now. He can't go in the temple. That's what they cared about. They were haters. They saw the smiles. They saw all the smiles on people's faces. They saw the adoration. They saw the lives change. They saw the celebration, and they didn't take part in any of it, and they didn't believe. How could you not believe? 
How could you be a, a witness to those things and still be a hater? How could that happen? Here's the story I'm talking about. Jesus went into the synagogue again and noticed a man with a deformed hand. <laughs> it would be like somebody coming into church. Jesus comes in and right away he sees it. Now, I don't know if this particular situation was a setup or not. I don't know. I don't know if the person with the deformed hand came to church that day wanting and hoping that Jesus would walk in. We do not know. All we know is that it says Jesus went in and he saw it. But since it was the Sabbath, and you know the rules, they had rules. The haters have rules. Rules, rules, rules. What is the rule here? What is the rule he's breaking? Jesus' enemies watched him closely. And, and if he healed the man's hand, they planned to accuse him of working on the Sabbath. You know the Ten Commandments, right? Honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. That's the commandment. How do you keep it holy? How do you keep it holy? You know, I remember dis- distinctly when I was in high school, we used to, every, not every Sunday, but lots of Sundays, we'd play football on Sunday afternoons. We'd go to church, and we were really involved in church. Then we'd go to church at night, too. We did both. And then just being with the guys from church and hanging out was a Sabbath. I remember once when um, the pastor confronted me and he said, he said, Dennis, I, I think you guys are dishonoring the Sabbath. And I was so shocked because I'm, <laughs> I've always been this way because I said, what are you talking about? And he, and he said, because you're playing football on Sunday. So well, Sunday's not the Sabbath. <laughs> That's what I said. It's not. Saturday's the Sabbath. And he said, well, you should be resting. And I said, well, I, my spirit feels rejuvenated <laughs> by doing what we're doing. I wasn't trying to be a jerk. I was just saying, if we're talking about the spirit of law, because the Sabbath is not Sunday. I mean, I was just sitting there. I was just amazed. Like, really? And then it happened a few, year, a few months later. I blew my knee out on a Sunday afternoon playing football on the sabbath and when the pastor came and saw me he said i told you and i remember laying there and i said pastor do you really think god made my knee blow out to punish me for celebrating him on the football field <laughs> you know and he says no probably not but and i'll never forget that and i remember thinking was the Sabbath, didn't Jesus say, was the Sabbath made for man or man for the Sabbath? Yes, you should honor the Sabbath. Please honor the Sabbath. And rest, rest, rest. But I, I think about this and I, I thought, they were trying to catch him in this. Accuse him of working. What was the law? You know, the Jews added all these laws to the Ten Commandments, that, that commandment that said honor the Sabbath. And they, they defined work in so many restrictive ways. And not in this scripture, but in another one, Jesus says, are you telling me you wouldn't pull your mule out of a ditch if it fell in a ditch? That's work. Way more work than healing somebody. Jesus is trying to challenge their idea of what God was like right here. What, what is God about? Is he somebody that would rather see a man have a deformed hand than heal him? No. Does he want you to rest on the Sabbath? Yes. Can he do both? Yes. He's a God who loves you and cares about you. And he's not trying to make you just be so restricted. This, this rule, they made all these rules. They, they said, well, what if somebody's traveling? Here's what they said. You could walk one mile on the Sabbath. That would not be work. But if you walked more than one mile, 
it would be work. Do you know the get around they developed for that? Because we're bad about that, aren't we? We give us a line and we'll find a way to get right up to the line. So then what they said is you could set up a temporary structure, a little tent, and then take it down, then you could walk another mile. Isn't that more work? <laughs> Isn't that a lot more hassle to just not work? And just keep going. Yeah, I know. So here's the rest of that scripture. Um, Jesus said to the man with the deformed hand, come up here and stand in front of everyone. He was using his, him as an object lesson to try to teach these people. Then he turned to his critics and he asked, does the law permit good deeds on the Sabbath or is it a day for doing evil? Is this a day to save life or destroy it? But they wouldn't answer him. They wouldn't answer him. Probably because they'd already been stung so many times by trying to catch him in something and trying to, to work little word plays on him. And you remember the time when they came up and they said, is it lawful to pay, pay taxes to Caesar? Because what they were trying to do is get him in trouble with Rome because Rome required taxes. And you remember his answer? He said, well, show me a coin. And the coin they showed him had Caesar's image. And he says, whose image is this? And they said, Caesar's. And they said, pay to Caesar what's Caesar's and pay to God what's God's. And they were amazed. And they decided that day they weren't going to ask him any more questions. He's doing the same thing here. He's saying, guys, seriously, what do you think is more important to God here? This man's health or whether or not we fit into your made-up rules about what violating the Sabbath looks like. They wouldn't even answer him. So he looked around at them angrily and was deeply saddened by their hard hearts. I want you to notice that when in the New Testament and in the Bible itself, they use some very specific language. They use words that a lot of times we just rush over. When I was reading this a couple weeks ago, what caught me was Jesus was angry. Because I don't think of him like that very often. I mean, think of him in this peaceful, you know, nothing bothers him. But he did get angry. It says he looked at them angrily. And then it says he was saddened. Not, not just saddened, but deeply saddened. Deeply saddened by their hard hearts. Then he said to the man, hold out your hand. So the man held out his hand and it was restored. And there was celebration. But the haters continued to hate. And at once the Pharisees went away and met with the supporters of Herod to plot how to kill Jesus. Haters are going to hate. They're going to hate. Let's, let's look at this for a minute. Jesus looked at them angrily. I tried to imagine what that would be like. Can you imagine what it would be like? Now, your relationship with him is totally different than theirs. They were haters. They didn't, they didn't agree with who he was. They didn't see who he was. For, for them, he wasn't the Messiah, the the one that came to fulfill all the, the prophecies of the Messiah. To him, he wasn't the savior of their soul. He wasn't the one who, who redeemed them. He wasn't any of those things to him. For you, he's those things. You've read the end of the book. You've come to terms with the fact that you're a sinner and you needed to be saved by his sacrifice and he saved you. It's different for you. That's not who he was to them. And when, they, when he looked at them angrily, what kind of a look do you think they returned to him? An angry look. They probably just said, whatever, and walked out. They may have even done a gesture. I don't know what a Jewish gesture of insult would be during those days. I don't know. Might have been like, ah, whatever, or who knows? I don't know. But here's what I do know. When I want to imagine Jesus looking at me, it's not an angry look I want. I know that there's things I do that disappoint him, but I pray to God and I hope that nothing I do warrants an angry look from Jesus. Can't even imagine that. 
It reminded me, I told you this before, but there were times where I'd be going out and my mom would say, can Jesus go with you? I'm like, mom, what do you think we're doing here? You know, it'd never be something like that. But at the same time, I wonder sometimes when, when, I, when I'm, I'm doing something and I have a careless word or when, when, when maybe something's going on and I, I feel like snapping at somebody or maybe, maybe there's times when, you know, God forbid, but we let our mood affect the way we treat others or, or maybe when we don't want the best for others or maybe when the way those haters hate that idea, those, those thoughts creep into our minds too. Jesus was saddened by their hard hearts. I think what we see in this picture here is we get a glimpse into the heart of the Savior where they were haters. It says there they were his enemies, Jesus' enemies. But no matter who it was, his heart for them was totally different than ours. You know how it is when you have a hater or you have someone in your life who's against you or an enemy. Some of you may have that at your job where no matter what you do, they're against you. Some of you may have that in your family. But Jesus' response to that was sadness. They were legit, legit enemies and haters of him. And ultimately the ones who would plot and be responsible for his death. And his response to them was still compassion. His, his response to them was it saddened his heart that their hearts were hard. I look at that and I think... There is no depth to who Jesus is and the the savior of our souls, where he would look in the very eyes of those who hated him and would plot his death, and his heart broke for them, and he was sad for them. Did, Did he know that they would be the ones that would do that? Yeah, he knew that, but it still made him sad. Did, did he know that they were the ones that were going to be responsible ultimately for his crucifixion? Yeah, he did. And he still was sad. His mercy and grace goes way beyond, I think, than what we're even capable of. And when I see his response to that, it makes me love him all the more. It makes me want to be like him all the more. He, he wanted them to change, knowing that they wouldn't change. He wanted them to experience the same grace, the same peace, the same love, the same reconciliation, the same joy, the same exhilaration that those crowds were feeling at seeing and witnessing those miracles. And he knew they wouldn't, but that's what he wanted for them. His heart for them was always the best, no matter what. That is so difficult for us as humans to do. Because our immediate response is one of protection. We've got we've to have some kind of protection mechanism where we, 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 we are hard toward them. Those that are hard toward us, we're hard back. It protects us. We've got to somehow make ourselves strong against that hate. And he wasn't like that. You know what he did even as he was on the cross. He, he said, Lord, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. Oh, that we could be like that. Stephen was like that when he was being martyred. And we're being martyred all the time. And do we do that? Do we respond the way he responded? How does that even happen, that hardening hearts? I believe it first happens gradually. Hearts harden gradually. I don't, I don't think that those Pharisees, as they became Pharisees, maybe some of them, but I don't think most of them started out that way. You think about their life. You know, they, they memorized scripture and they were told that if they could memorize the scripture, that they would be holier and better. And that was what drove them at first. 
But then at some point, that hardness crept in, and they couldn't even see the Messiah right in front of them. They couldn't even recognize the goodness of healing a man's hand. And instead, that incensed them and made them harder, and they decided they wanted to kill him for doing something good. How did they get there? How does it even happen? I think they started in a good place. At least I want to think that about them. And that at some point, brick by brick, their hearts became hard. I think of it like this. We may not choose the end result, that ultimate hardness, but it's those little choices along the way that lead us to hardness. I don't think anybody starts out thinking, I'm going to be a hard, bitter, angry person that won't see any joy in anything. That's not how we start out. It's those little things that happen. And maybe it's little things even that happen to us or maybe horrible things that happen to us. But instead of choosing the way Jesus chose to return good for evil and the way Jesus chose to turn the other cheek and the way Jesus chose to see the image of God in that hard person, we become harder. We let it happen. I think it starts with who we choose to be around and surround ourselves with. Because they say over and over, you know, you're going to be like you're the average of your five closest friends. My parents said birds of a feather flock together. And it may not start that way, but it becomes that way. It may be that you, you choose to let those people influence you. And you end up becoming more like them than them like you. Maybe it's what you're attracted to. And, you know, we know from... We know that some people, it's, it's the power that maybe the Pharisees had, or maybe it's that self-righteousness that began to grow and grow and grow. And you know what? As, as they got better, they realized, yeah, I am better than all these people. I, I am. I don't do as many things wrong as they do. And life was pretty easy for them. You know, the world of the first century was a brutal place. Most people didn't live till middle age because they died of sickness or disease or poverty. I mean, it was a tough place to be. There was no middle class. And the Pharisees would have been in the upper class. They would have been educated. They would have had money coming their way. They would have been clean and the people in the crowd dirty. That would have been a literal difference in them. And it's not much of a leap to see how then they would think, not only am I physically clean, but I'm spiritually clean. And I'm better than them. And brick by brick, their hearts become hard. Makes you wonder who they listen to. Who, who listen, you know, we sometimes make the mistake of, of living in an echo chamber where we, we say the same things and believe the same things and the people right around us. And Carol, you are good. And Carol says, you're good too. And yeah, we're good. And we are good and they're not. Psalm 1 says it like this. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers. Do you see the progression there? It starts so simple. It's so mild. I mean, you're just, you're just walking with them, and then eventually you're standing with them, and then finally you're sitting with them, and you're part of who they are. Then the, the psalmist says, but, but those whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his night, day and night, that person is different than them. He's like a tree planted by the streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. The psalmist is drawing a distinction between those two things. The, the, the believer, the righteous one, stays close to God. The other stays close to other people. Makes me question, you know, what's in your heart? What is in your heart? Matthew, Jesus says, 
The things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart, and these defile them. A lot of times you can see what's in a person by what comes out of their mouth. And then in Proverbs it says, humble yourselves, <laughs> oh Peter, under the, the power of God at the right time you lift you up. That was from last week. Proverbs says, watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. It's easy to step back and look at those haters in Jesus' time and wonder, how in the world could they miss that the very child of God was in their presence? How could they miss someone so humble and peaceful and full of grace? Someone who did good everywhere he went. He fed the, fed the 5,000. He healed people. He, he was kind and good, and yet they hated him. How could that be? It's because they weren't watching their heart, and eventually their heart got more and more and more hard. And lest we think that any of us are above this, even the disciples fall prey to this at one point. And a lot of points, but in this particular one place I want to take you in Scripture, the Bible recounts how the sons of thunder, the sons of Zebedee, James and John, their mom goes to Jesus and she says, hey, can you do me this favor? When you come into all your glory, can my sons sit at your right and your left and reign with you? (laughs) How How could you even ask him that? And the disciples, they're indignant. It says here, when the 10 other disciples heard what James and John asked, they they were indignant. But Jesus called them together and he said, you know that the rulers of this world are haters. And they love to lord it over people and their officials flaunt their authority over over those under them. But among you, it will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must become your slave. For even the Son of Man came not to serve, be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. For Jesus, it's about humility and servant leadership. That hardness of the heart, it leads to us missing what God has for us. It leads to us missing when Jesus is moving right in front of us and you can miss it. As their heart gets hard, you could miss what's best in others. You could miss celebrating what God is doing in those around you, ultimately missing God himself. So how do you keep your heart soft? How do you do it? I think you need to regularly check your motives. Regularly check them. Disappointment's going to come. Burnout's going to come. Bad things are going to happen, and and there's a chance for your heart to become hard. And then... That scripture in Ezekiel rings in my mind where it says, Jesus, or God says to the people here, he says, I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit in you. I'll take out your stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender, responsive heart. Do you want that? A tender, responsive heart? I do. I do. You need to protect your heart. Psalms, we, we looked at this scripture last week, but in Psalm 139, it says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life. What I'd like to do with us tonight is um, I have this YouTube video I'm just going to show. It's, it's Casting Crowns, a band that's been around a while, long time. And uh, I normally, I, I'm not, not normally a fan of worship music that has talking in it. You know how sometimes they, it's live, so there's talking. And I'm like, I don't want to hear you talk. I just want to hear the music, but. But there's going to be an intro he's going to do here and talk about his heart. And he's going to talk about wanting to be right before God. So here's what I'd like you to do as we close tonight. What I'd like you to do is just listen to the song. And as, as the worship happens, I mean, you can shut your eyes. You don't have to watch the video or anything. You can hear it. But um, it's going to be 
talking, this song is talking about us and our heart. I just want you to put yourself before him. And before we play, play it, I just want to pray with you. And then afterward, Dave's going to put some music on and you can stay or go, whatever. It's up to you, between you and God, where your heart is. God, I pray that you would help us to be as honest before you as we could possibly be. We don't have to come to God like somebody else. We come to him like we are. And a lot of times that means that I start my prayer time with, God, just show me my heart. Show me where I am. God, show me truth about myself so I know how to follow you. Sing this prayer with us. Here's my heart, Lord. Here's my heart, Lord. Here's my heart, Lord. Speak what is true. Sing that again. Here's my heart. Here's my heart, Lord. Can you pray that to him? Here's my heart, Lord. Here's my heart, Lord. Speak truth, Lord. Speak what is true. I am found. I am yours. I am loved. I'm made pure. I have life. I can breathe. I am here.
ask God to search your heart. Lord, open us up. Speak to us. Draw us closer to you, Father. You sing this prayer to him. You are more than enough. Can you sing that? Because you are more.